Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, the podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is uh, Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is a professor of history at the University of Exeter. He is the author of well over 50 books. Is it 50 or is it uh, 100, Professor? It's well over a hundred. It doesn't make me a better person, but I'm the most published historian in the world. Ah. Crime to trees, I think <laughs> one could fairly say. Well, well, hats off to that. I'm sure you should be congratulated for that. And today we are speaking about his newest book, or at least I think it's the newest book, unless something else has come out afterwards. Um, Charting the Past, the Historical World of 18th Century England. Welcome, Professor Black. Welcome and good good morning. Uh, professor, what is the thesis of your book? The thesis of my book is that the 18th century, far from being simply a, a period of looking forward, as it would obviously seem to be if you're looking at the United States or thinking of the 18th century in terms of industrial revolution or agricultural revolution or political revolutions, was also, like all other periods, I would add, but we tend to forget this for the 18th century, a period that understood itself by looking backwards, and that in part it encoded its political dissensions and its senses of identity with reference to the past. I mean, that would probably not sound too unfamiliar if you were thinking about modern Britain at the time of the Brexit debate, or modern United States, and where people obviously fight, you know, the culture wars of the past. But actually, we don't tend to think about the 18th century in those terms. So that was what I wanted to recover. That was part one. Part two, and linked to that, was arguing that our interpretation of religion was highly, uh, sorry, our interpretation of history was highly secular, but that for many people in the 18th century, uh, debates about uh, church organization and religious identity were just as important, and that we should therefore give due weight to religious history as well as secular history. And part three was to argue that, and I think this is equally applicable for the present day, that we had a very misleading canon of historians, that we'd focused on those historians of the 18th century, like Hume, for example, who looked most, as it were, or could be presented most as looking to the future, but that there were many historians who were important to contemporaries, but have since been neglected or ignored. And I would argue the same thing is true as a whole, that an aspect of culture wars is which historians people choose as being of significance. And uh, may I ask, uh, what exactly, I mean, for the audience, uh, is the, uh, what you referred to a couple of times in the, in the book, is the long 18th century? 
The long 18th century in British terms begins either with 1660, the restoration of Charles II, or with 1688, the Glorious Revolution, and ends in 1815 with the Battle of Waterloo. And the idea is that this is a period of, whilst not identical beliefs, of relatively similar beliefs, and that by chopping things up at 1700 and 1800, we, as it were, fail uh, to you know, to really understand it. So you could, if you were thinking in modern terms, think, for example, of a short 20th century, which begins in 1914 with the start of World War One and ends in 1989 with the, you know, the collapse of communist hegemony in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Why did you begin the book with the uh, antidote about the future American president, uh, then um, minister, United States minister to um, uh, United Kingdom, John Adams, paying a visit to Edge Hill in Worcester in uh, 1785. It's not just just John Adams, it's also Thomas Jefferson. They go around together. Um, Well, because I think in many senses, although obviously from the perspective of today, uh, we tend to think of Britain and the United States as uh, separate, that would have been a bizarre view uh, for early Americans. They were very much taking part in a political and religious rivalry within the English-speaking world. So people like Adams and Jefferson and George Washington were offering an interpretation that was George different to that of George III. It's worth bearing in mind that there were people in Britain, who were, or British Isles, who would have agreed with Washington, uh, Adams and Jefferson, and there were people in what became the United States who would have agreed with George III. So that um, these senses of competing identities and of the competing historical associations of what people thought of as liberal both uh, political and religious, meant a lot. So when when Adams and and, uh, Jefferson go to Edge Hill and Worcester, um, they go to what they see as, as it were, a key place in American liberty, because as far as they're concerned, the parliamentarians, the Puritans in the English Civil War, and we're referring to the Battle of Edge Hill in 1642, and we're referring to the Battle of uh, Worcester in 1651, were as much taking part in what would be now called American history as they were taking part in British history. And that was a view that would have been quite uh, understood by most American writers, intellectuals, commentators, historians, up to, I'd like to suggest, the 1960s. Would it be correct to say that a sense of the past was evident in all aspects of day-to-day existence in 18th century England? Yes, I mean, I think people were much more reverential to the past uh, and referential to it, reverential about it, referential to it, than is the case today. Down to the fact that your name would probably be that of an ancestor, you'd probably be living in a building which had been there for a while, you'd be eating the same food your parents had eaten, you'd probably be doing the same job your parents had done. There was a much greater sense of continuity than is the sense today. Uh, what, if any, were the social purpose purposes of history in 18th century England? Well, I think history gave people a sense of identity and continuity, and I think that was very, very important. And what's, in, and it's, what's interesting today is obviously the sense in which a lot of people feel that they lack that. The other thing was it gave people a sense of validation. Why was a political or religious um, set of values, social values, valid 
it was valid because it had a continuity, because people had been, your grandfather had done it, people did it in the past. That gave things a sense of validation. In a way, we don't have that at the moment. At the moment, we're struggling with different aspects of democratization, the idea that things only take on meaning if people consent to them, and that their consent can be almost daily um, you know, contested. Um, so, I mean, one of the most interesting things in you, you know, if, 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 is to think, for example, about and how a, a lot of Americans, not all Americans by any means, a lot of Americans and some British people refer to religion. What they will tell you is, you know, they have found God. Well, the you know, big surprise might be to them that, if, you know, the deity doesn't quite have the same view of it in historical terms. But this notion that today religion is dependent on present ascent, whereas in the 18th century, religion was essentially something that was based in social, uh, political and religious continuity. Do we have an idea at all who formed the reading public in 18th century England? Uh, we have a bit of an idea. I mean, obviously, you had to be literate. Literacy rates were rising, but I think it's fair to say that they were not universal. But, I mean, history was presented in many accessible fashions, so you didn't need to be able to buy a book to read history. You have the great growth of libraries in the 18th century. It's really in the 18th century that public libraries develop. You also have history being put in bit parts in magazines and even more, much more history appearing in newspapers. I've written several books on newspaper history in the 18th century, and well, and more generally. Um, newspapers often included chunks of um, history, and I think it's fair to say that many of the writers of the period were writing for a broad market. I mean, you've got some people whom you might see of as other respects. So John Wesley, to most people, is the founder of West, uh, Methodism. He also wrote a four-volume history of England. Or Oliver Goldsmith is most famous as a playwright. She stoops to conquer and so on. He also wrote a history of England. For that matter, Jane Austen wrote a history of England. The fact of the matter was that, uh, that you know, there was a sense by writers that history was a major component of what they should be engaging with. Who uh, could it be said was the most influential historian at the beginning of uh, the long 18th century? Oh, without a doubt, I would say uh, you know the translators of the Bible into English, because if you look at uh, if you look at historical works, the historical works that are most dominant uh, would be initially. I mean, we know that in the 17th and 18th century, the, uh, the the texts for sermons were principally drawn from the Book of Kings. So this idea about ancient Israel, and of course in the 18th century, you get this notion. You can see it very clearly with the. Op, op, um, your oratoria as a George Frederick Handel, the idea of ancient Israel and modern Britain being together, that modern Britain has, as it were, picked up the baton or, uh, or is the continuation of that. Um, so also, historian, sort of writers like um, uh, Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, who write works which are crossovers between religion and and uh, um, sort of, as it were, spiritual autobiography. And it's also worth bearing in mind, um, in case one forgets this, that most novels, no, that's going too far, many novels, one can think, for example, of the history of Tom Jones, many novels also go for this bridge over between fiction and fact. Um, the idea, in other words, that we have that in some way historical writing 
is a separate academic uh, activity, principally uh, moderated through universities, would have been bizarre to 18th century uh, ideas. The notion was an engagement with the past, whether it's a real past or a fictional past, whether it is the past of the world of uh, events on the ground or the past of, as it were, a spiritual world, are all part and parcel of, of an engagement between past and present, and that the present is only a moment in time in the relationship between the past and the future. Uh, you're right that much of historical writing in the 18th century was directly or indirectly about the royal succession issue. When was this no longer the case? By 1760, or was it even later? No, I would say certainly by 1760. The complete failure of the Jacobites in the, at the Battle of Clubben in 1746 really effectively ed, ends that challenge. And of course, what you have after that is a sort of mid-18th century reconciliation to a considerable extent between Whigs and Tories. And you have, you know, the successful war, which you call the French and American War, we call the Seven Years War, in which causes an enormous apogee of national self-confidence. And at that point, it's, you know, people don't tend, I mean, you know, people can always write across a broad range, but people don't tend to dwell too much on the question marks. Obviously, the situation is to change very rapidly. But one of the points about time and human relationship with time is that it is non-linear. What might have been the case five years ago is not going to be what the case is today. You're right that 18th century historians were not nearly as backward in the use of primary source materials as 19th and 20th century historians seem to think. Uh, why was this? And um, can you expand on that? Yes, I think that um, there was a there was a tendency, particularly among university academics, to argue that before the age of universities, and you know, until eighteen thirty two, when the University of Durham is founded, or if you want to go a bit earlier, University College London is founded a bit earlier, but it's not a full university. Until then, there were only two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, and neither of them were exactly noted for the diligence of their staff or their students. Um, so the university sector was relatively modest, but later academics in the 19th century tended to take the view that people writing before that day, those days were sort of uncritical. I'm afraid to say that's not true. I mean, the um, historians of the 18th century widely used uh, documents. They used uh, medieval charters. They used parliamentary records. And they used inscriptions in church uh, churchyards and in churches. They used whatever they could get their hands on, and sometimes they, you know, produced curiosities. Uh, but I mean, you know, in the sense that works that we would not regard as particularly impressive. But others of them were producing highly impressive, impressive works, and some of them have remained, you know, sort of classics. I mean, I suppose the most famous work of British history from the 18th century is Edward Gibbon's *Time of the Roman Empire*. Um, which came out between, it's multi-volume, came out between 1776 and 1788. And, you know, he had a library of about 6,000 books. He could read a number of, of languages. He was interested in reading the, um, as it were, chronicles of the uh, Roman writers. And, you know, he made a pretty good job of it. I mean, you know, you wouldn't these days write a history of the decline of the Roman Empire in the same way, but it's well worth reading. And it's, and since the other thing that's interesting about it is, of course, Gibbon was a member of parliament for much of that period. Um, the idea that there should be a separation between 
a kind of the world of the of the intellect or the intellectual and the world of events would something that would again would have seemed very odd to uh, the 18th century I and mean, for that matter a lot of uh, a lot of historians were not given a lot of historians were clerics I and mean, William Robertson in, in Scotland for example of them and they uh, you know had to fulfill their clerical duties so the idea that you were in some way separate uh, would not have struck people as as accurate uh, in the party strife between uh, what was the, called Whigs and Tories at the beginning of the 18th century boost the popularity of history? Well, it certainly boosted the interest of history because each political party uh, had an account of the past in which their views were, not surprisingly, the consequential ones that arose um, from that account. And again, we can think of uh, uh, later and other examples to the same extent. Yes, I mean... Um, you would be expected, if you were taking part in political debate in the 1720s and 30s, to have a view, for example, not just of the English Civil War, not in the 1640s, not just of the expulsion of James II in 1688, but you would probably have a view on Magna Carta, 1215. You would probably have a view on the development of the Witan, the Anglo-Saxon, as it were, pseudo-parliament um, in the 8th and 9th centuries. And, you know, people would... Um, make references in their writing correspondence, in the naming of their children, in architectural uh, things to people like King, uh, King Alfred of Wessex, um, who, who after all was a, you know, a, 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 a ninth century figure. <laughs> so we're, we're, people would have a long way back. I mean, it, the opposition to Sir Robert Walpole, who was first minister from 1720, some people say 21, but I think 1720 is a fairer date, to 1742, regularly compared him, the idea being that he was misleading the king. You know, newspapers regularly compared him to Cardinal Wolsey under Henry VIII, to Sejanus, the uh, advisor of the uh, Roman emperor Tiberius, uh, to the Duke of Buckingham under Charles I. And so, you know, these were comparisons a long way back in time. And it was assumed that readers would understand that. And so also in comedy or satire. Uh, and if you can think of Sheridan's play, The Critic, which is written and staged in 1779, there is a play within a play in which Mr. Puff uh, is putting on a production of his version of the play about the Spanish Armada of 1588, with the notion being that that event of nearly 200 years earlier is immediately and obviously relevant. Can you tell the audience about Gilbert Burnett and what type of history did he write? Well, Gilbert Burnett is a classic example of a Whig, uh, relatively low church uh, Protestant who writes pro-William III anti-Stuart stuff. And that's a strong tradition among Whig historiography in the late 17th and early 18th century. And of course, it resonates a lot with American readers. They read it. And then what they do is present in their own mind George III as another example of James II, which George III was not an example of James II, uh, not least because George III was a committed Protestant, James II was a committed Catholic, but nevertheless, I mean, it proved possible to pillory in that, in, in that light. I wrote a book some years ago, a biography of George III called America's Last King, uh, published by Yale, and I very much made the point that the presentation of George by Thomas Jefferson et al. was totally erroneous. doesn't mean that the American Revolution was wrong, whatever you mean by right or wrong, but it certainly was based on a false history. Uh, who was Daniel Neal? What type of history did he write? 
Well, again, he's one of these um, low church tradition. I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, these are individuals who today are much less noted um, than we would uh, anticipate. I mean, my favourite um, is a chap called Nares, who was Regis Professor of History from 1813 to 1841, who I discuss at the end of the book. And he was an Anglican clergyman. Um, and he actually produced a very major three-volume biography of uh, Elizabeth's minister, uh, William Cecil, First Lord Burley. But the fact of the matter is he's completely forgotten. And the reason he's forgotten is because he was a committed Anglican. He preached against the French Revolution. Uh, and, you know, as it were, the, the historical tradition tends to be dominated by people of a certain type. Could it be said that there was a different type of history which came to the fore in the years of uh, the war of the Austrian succession up to the end of the Seven Years' War? Yes, I'd say that, well, different time of history, I'd say, I mean, it's still a history that's looking back, but I think it's fair to say that the Stuart theme is less pronounced once the Stuarts have been defeated. So after 1745... Um, that sort of um, succession-type influence history sort of uh, uh, leaves the scene as Diminishes. It diminishes. It would be wrong to say it doesn't exist, but it diminishes. Uh, would you say that John Wellesley could be characterized as a Tory historian? Well, I've done so. I mean, I've you know published an article separately about Wellesley's history, um, his history of England, um, Yes, and I mean, if you've read it, uh, sorry, either the article or the book or the, or the Wesley, you will know that in it, for example, um, he's relatively pro the Stuarts. I mean, certainly more so than a lot of the Whigs. So incidentally, as somebody who I didn't really write about at length in this book, but I've been doing some work about her since, which is Jane Austen. Um, one of the interesting things about Jane Austen is, aside from writing this short history of England, she also annotated a version of Oliver Goldsmith's History of England in which she very much uh, vilified the Whigs and praised the Tories. So she very much praised uh, Charles I um, and she very much praised uh, Robert Harley, first Earl of Oxford, the uh, Queen Anne's Tory first minister in her last years, who was subsequently impeached. And she makes several... Uh, ad hominem remarks in which she's very critical of Whigs and very praising Tories. Now, that's not the usual view of Jane Austen you see when you see a version of Pride and Prejudice, but in many senses this shouldn't surprise us. Jane Austen was the daughter of an Anglican clergy. Um, she was not, I mean, the Whigs were traditionally associated more with nonconformity, and the nonconformists would be regarded as the opponents of the, uh, of the Tories. Would you characterize David Hume as a Tory historian? I think David Hume is very complex. Uh, he wouldn't have called himself a Tory historian. Uh, I think David, uh, David Hume is a very complex figure, not least because, of course, he is of Scottish origin and therefore harder to place in the uh, counterparts of um, English, uh, English uh, party alignment. I would say he certainly understood the significance of monarchy um, I would say that by the time he was writing in the 1760s, and remember, 
he served uh, as a diplomat under George III, albeit in a minor capacity. I think he was quite happy with the way in which George III had sought to distinguish and differentiate himself from his grandfather, George II, and great-grandfather, George III, Sanabirianism. And, you know, George III offered a kind of Anglican uh, Toryism, which was Tory without necessarily being the name. I mean, George III didn't run around calling himself a Tory, but he was a, certainly a damn sight more Tory than his two predecessors. How widespread was the employment of classical history as a means of making comparisons to the then present? And Extremely. Like, it was very, very common, very common throughout the period, and it the, goes on being common. So it doesn't change in, in terms of at the end of the long 18th century? No, it's still very, very common. It's this frame of reference. I mean, people um, would have been educated in the classics. They They saw the classics as their basic sort of storybook in some respects, the basic warning of all sorts of things, whether the warning was of the decline of the Republic or of the decline of the Empire, uh, whether the warning was of Athens over uh, over egging itself by attacking Syracuse during the Peloponnesian War, uh, they, whether it was Rome as the persecutor of Christians or Rome as the empire that, under which Christianity spread, uh, you know, it could provide a whole host of different lessons. What were the major influences on Edward Gibbon as a historian? Well, his own personal interest, and I think in many senses the fact that he'd been a member of Parliament. And how influential would you say Gibbon was after the publication of uh, the first volume of The Decline and Fall in 1776? Well, the book was certainly very well read, and he himself commented about how it was read by all sorts of people. Uh, influence? No, I don't think Lord North got up and said to himself, this is what we ought to do. I think that would be a sort of naive view. But I, I think it was significant, yes, in terms of, um, here we go, uh, history is still economically and commercially very successful. I think it encourages yet more people to write it. It keeps up the publication interest. I think those were important. Another figure that you discuss, Edmund Burke, uh, did he consider himself as a, a historian? He considered himself principally, I mean, history was one of his interests, but he considers himself principally, again, as a member of parliament. I mean, as, as, as I think I've mentioned, I mean, people did not have this sense of separation. Um, and... Um, you know, um, he was a member of parliament. He used history, for example, in his um, criticisms of nonconformity, in his reflections on the French Revolution, in his argument that there should be, um, um, you know, um, um, continuity and his idealization of uh, history as itself a moral good. But he wouldn't have necessarily seen himself per se as specifically a historian. You seem to indicate that Burke was not partial to the idea of the so-called Norman yoke. Why was that, and how widespread was uh, the belief, this uh, belief in uh, the Norman yoke in this time period? Well, it's one of the things that have been argued from the um, uh, 17th century onwards. I mean, there are references to it beforehand. The idea that, in some respect, the rule of the aristocracy was represented something that had come in with the Norman conquest and the onset of feudalism. 
I wouldn't say it's the central issue uh, in people writing about the past, but obviously it's something that is, lends itself more to radicals. And I wouldn't describe Edmund Burke at this period, specific moment, as a radical. If you wanted people to take away one thing from your book, what would it be? Uh, what I'd like them to take away is that history is itself a sort of protean process, that there is no way in which there is a fixed, definitive history, that history, the writing about history, our understanding of history, reflects political, cultural, and social pressures, and that we have to be very careful of assuming that, that it's pushing in one particular direction. I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Keogh. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much.